Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this very special Sunday, very unique, um, many different reasons. On staff, we're affectionately calling this Sunday No Name Sunday. Next week will be New Name Sunday, where it is fully official. We did have a name change vote on uh, Wednesday night, so it is, uh, I guess, uh, official from that aspect. But we are celebrating that next week, Sunday. So today is a bit different. You'll notice we're in transition. They've already started. I hope you noticed the walls weren't gray last uh, week, Sunday. And we started painting. Um, very excited about this new season God's calling us to. What's also unique is I'm only preaching the morning service. So if you are one of those stalwarts that comes to church twice on a Sunday, you're going to be treated to two different sermons this Sunday. Bryce is preaching this evening. Um, so I only get one shot. So usually if I botch the morning, I say, Lord, help me uh, in the evening. Um, today, it's one shot. I'll give it my best with you. Um, Matt gave me the freedom to choose what I want to preach on, which I guess can be a scary thought for you. Um, so it's not a series. This is a one-off. And in this morning sermon, I am looking at one of my favorite Old Testament characters, Elijah. Elijah's context is one of massive spiritual decline in Israel. The book of Kings is uh, one that begins with the reign of Solomon, and Israel is at the peak of her powers. She will never return there, by the way. She will never again be as great as she was in Solomon's day. Maybe one day she will be, but it hasn't happened yet. And it's part of why Israel rejects Jesus as the Messiah, because in their mind, the Messiah was meant to restore Israel to the golden age. Because during Solomon's reign, this is what Israel was like. They were the most powerful nation in the world. They were the richest nation in the world. They were le led by the richest and wisest king there had ever been. And so all is well at the start of Kings. David has built a wonderful foundation for Solomon to build upon. He has shepherded the people of Israel skillfully, and the nation is serving the Lord. And because of that, the Lord is blessing them. That's the start of Kings. And what we start to see happening in 1 Kings, sadly, is Solomon starts off so well, it says he loved the Lord with all his heart, and he walked in the ways of his father. But as he gets older, he drifts. And a spiritual decline begins in Israel that is hit rock bottom by 1 Kings chapter 17, where we see Elijah burst onto the scene. Elijah's story is just 10 chapters. He doesn't get his own book. When you look through the prophets, you won't find the name Elijah written in any of the book's titles. He, he's there for a short period of time, but those 10 chapters are packed with power. And if you want to read them after the sermon, uh, you can start in 1 Kings chapter 17, you finish Kings, and Elijah's story ends in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2 or 3, somewhere around there. It is power-packed. So much so that when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, only two other people are there with him, and, that, and the disciples. But there's two special people that appear. Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets. He is the face of the prophets. That is the impact he has in just 10 short chapters. His name means, my God is Yahweh. 
and he serves at a time where Israel is not sure who her God is. He is the man who stopped rain for three years, who called down fire from heaven more than once, and who left this earth on chariots of fire. He didn't die. A chariot of fire came and collected him, and he ascended into glory. He is spectacular in those 10 chapters. It is spectacular from beginning to end. But in James 5, 17, James makes this peculiar statement, given all that I've said before, that Elijah was a man just like us. You know, Martin Luther struggled with James because James says that uh, um, it's not just faith. You need works as well. And Martin Luther didn't like that. I struggle with James because he says Elijah is just like me. And like I said before, this guy's one of my heroes. I know the story well. I read it often. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure Elijah was a man like me. Have you ever stopped the rain? I have actually. God did it, but I was there and I asked him to. We were standing in a piazza in Italy and... The, ship was, the ship's coming in March uh, 20th, and I was on that ship, a, a type of it. It was much older, uh, much more rickety. We almost sank multiple times on that 100-year-old uh, Dulos wooden ship sailing the waters. But in Italy, we were in this piazza, and I was in charge of this evangelistic program. And I had done it once before. I'd been to Italy twice. I understood the culture. Italians love to walk the streets on Saturday evenings. It's all they do. They, they dress up in, the, you know, it's the fashion capital of the world, Milan, and they dress up in their best outfits and they just walk. And coffee shops in Italy don't have seats. You are not meant to sit down and drink coffee the way we do. You go up to your counter, you order your coffee, you have a, a, a quick drink to keep the uh, energy up, and you keep walking. You walk up and down the streets, showing off yourself on those Saturday evenings. And at a previous port where I oversaw this program, we, all we did was, we didn't advertise, we didn't sell tickets, we rented out a piazza, a big square, it's not a pizza, piazza, okay, <laughs> and um, we rented out a big square, and then, you know, once people saw something was happening, they came and they sat, and we filled that place, there was maybe 2,000 people there, you preached the gospel, wonderful. So here I am, second time around in Italy, in Sicily now, in Catania, an active volcano in the background with lava coming down. Beautiful. Google Catania. And same idea. There's a lovely piazza. I'm not going to go through all the effort of trying to sell tickets and promote because I know in Italy on Saturday nights, they just walk right in. And we woke up on the morning of the Saturday to dark, angry skies. And the rain started falling at 7 a.m. and didn't stop. I had envisioned thousands of people walking the streets, stopping to enjoy an event filled with color, culture, and the gospel. And it rained all day, and we had not sold a single ticket. So we asked God to stop the rain. And if you know the story of Moses when he's standing up on the hill, and Joshua is fighting, I can't remember who they are, I should have probably double-checked it before I preached, but anyway, it's there. Uh, 
the Israelites are fighting one of the nations, and Joshua's down there, and Moses is up on the mountain, and it's very interesting. While Moses has his arms up in the air, interceding for them, they win. When he gets tired and his arms fall down, I don't know how long you've been able to keep your arms up in the air, but whenever Moses' arms fell down, Israel would start losing. And in the end, the way Israel wins that battle is to put one man either side of Moses to keep his arms up, and Israel wins. I know what that feels like, because on this Saturday, we are in this piazza setting the tables, uh, the stage up, the lights up, the chairs. It's this big event. Thousands of people could potentially come. And we're standing in a circle as a big team. There were maybe a hundred of us involved in this event, and we are praying. And while we are praying, we are feeling this drizzle stop. We say, thank you, Lord, because we've prayed now for about an hour for this, and it's happening. Thank you. Amen. And then we'd carry on trying to practice whatever, and guess what? The drizzle would start again. And so you'd find yourself throughout the day, and I just kept going, Lord, I can't pray all day. Like, I see you answering prayer, but then I also see you letting the rain keep coming, and I'm feeling a little bit like Moses, trying to keep my arms up, but I can't keep it up. We prayed all day. And the rain would stop, we would stop, then the rain started again. That day, it rained until 7 p.m., which was the start of the event. At 7 p.m., the piazza was empty. Not advertised, no tickets sold, and no one's walking through Italy on this wet evening. And fair enough. And I am starting to feel a bit embarrassed because I'm the one running the show. This was my idea. I'm in charge. People are looking to me. So I did what any good leader would do at 7 o'clock. I left. I couldn't handle the embarrassment of what I was seeing. I knew it was going to be this epic failure. And everyone, they'd put so much work into making this thing happen. One of the dancers had slipped on the stage in the, the practice and twisted her ankle. People were committed to trying to make this thing happen because I said, God told me to. So I went for a walk. And I actually had asked for another piazza. The piazza they gave us was uh, like a rundown, like secondhand one. I'd wanted, it was called Piazza del Mondo, like the world piazza. And it was that big. It was fantastic. It was just classical, beautiful. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to look at this epic failure in the piazza I didn't ask for. I'm going to go walk. It was a 100-meter walk. I'm going to walk to the other piazza. I'm just going to close my eyes and just dream what it could have been like. And I walked to Piazza del Mondo, and it was raining even harder there. And I just closed my eyes and imagined thousands of people. I said, Lord, that would have been beautiful. And then I turned back, stayed there about five minutes and started walking back. As I walked back, the rain stopped. I wasn't too excited about that because that had been on and off the whole day. And we need the rain to stop, but more importantly, we need people to be there. And when I got back to the piazza I didn't want that they gave us, not only had the rain stopped, and it would stop for the rest of that two-hour event. But the biggest miracle was that the piazza was filled with hundreds of people. 
the gospel was preached, people got saved, and I asked one of the locals why these people came out to see a show that was not even advertised, and he said that the only piazza that has people on wet nights like this is this one, the one I didn't want, the one that sovereignly got given to me. It, it wasn't perfect. It had a statue in the middle of it, so we had to put like, like chairs around the statue, and people were like bending their heads around the statue to see what was going on, but he, they said that the only um, piazza that has people in it on wet nuts like this is this one, and he said, you know why? Because this is the drug addict piazza. <laughs> and the drug addicts don't care that it's raining. They're coming to get their fix. And you know what the preacher's message that night was? He preached on Jesus coming not for the healthy but for the sick. And he came to me afterwards and he said, Mark, you know, we run this international night program, this evangelist evangelistic program, every three weeks in a different port to thousands of people. But you know what I feel most of the time when I'm standing before these people? I feel like I'm looking at Christians who've brought their church friends. And they might be out of the 2,000, maybe a handful of people I'm really preaching to haven't responded to the gospel. But this was the first night where I've preached at an international night where I felt like that whole crowd of hundreds of people were unsaved. Well done on getting them here. I didn't get them here. I had no clue that piazza, that was going to happen that night. And by the way, pastors, because I built relationships with pastors in the city, just as that lineup team is building a relationship with us, the pastors would call me and say, is international night happening because it's raining in my suburb? So I want you to imagine we're in East London and I've set up international night in Quigney somewhere. And Sterling's calling saying, it's raining here. Is international night happening? And I say, yes. And Beacon Bay is calling and saying, it's raining here. Is international night happening? And I say, yes. And the whole city is calling, telling me it's raining there in that suburb. And I'm looking up above me to lightning bolts and clouds, but no rain where we are. The Lord put an umbrella over our piazza so we could preach his word to the sick. And when I got back to the ship, my boss said to me, you stretch faith too far. And you know what? 42-year-old Mark agrees. But 23-year-old Mark, oh, that was a different story. So I have stopped the rain. I haven't called down fire, and I haven't gone for a ride in a fiery chariot. Yet. So if Elijah is a man just like us, as James says, then there must be some secret to his power. And my first point this morning is he is a man like us in power. There are two secrets to Elijah's power. I'm going to tell you a bit about his story because I'm not sure you're all familiar with it as um, I would like you to be. We're not going to read through it that much. We don't have time. But I am going to highlight two secrets because James is right. You're not going to believe it when you hear the stuff he's done. But he is a man just like us. That is true. It's in God's word. 
We are introduced to Elijah in the throne room of Israel where he challenges a wayward king and says that he will stop the rain. And it will not rain again except at his word. That's welcome, hello, Elijah. There's no backstory. The first time you see Elijah, he's standing in the throne room of Israel, looking at a rebellious king, the most powerful man in the land, and says to him, challenges him, the rain will stop at my word. And it will not rain again until I say so. You have to have some guts. Almost said something else, but we'll go with guts. To make this bold proclamation. The drought was God's judgment against Israel's rebellion. But instead of repenting of that rebellion, Ahab seeks, Ahab is the wayward king, Ahab seeks to destroy Elijah and God tells Elijah to hide. And for three years he hides. And they can't find him. It doesn't rain for a thousand days. Because Elijah said so. Where did this courage come from? Where did this power to withhold the elements for a thousand days come from? The secret is in the first verse, and you can put that up on the screen, of 1 Kings 17. This is our introduction to Elijah. We know nothing about him before this, but in the first verse, and I've made the phrase bold for you. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. The first secret, friends, is that Elijah stood in God's presence. His power was not his own. It didn't come from him. There was nothing special about him. What was special about him was that he stood in God's presence, and because he did that, he had the power to live the life God was asking him to. So what about you and me? How do we apply the secret to ourselves? How do you or I stand before God? Well, Elijah is a man just like us. And God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't look at one man and favor him over another. So if Elijah can stand before God's presence, then so can you. Every believer can stand in God's presence every day because they have gained access to his throne by the blood of Jesus. When you pray, you stand before him. You are brought before his very presence. And some of you might say, but I'm always in his presence because he's omnipresent. And, and David writes, I can't flee from his presence. And you would be correct, but there's a subtle flaw in that thought that I want to draw your attention to. Because Mary and Martha were in God's presence. Jesus visited their home, and they were both in his presence. One of them sat at his feet and looked at him, and listened to what he was saying, and the other one scurried around doing everything that they, she felt needed to be done. But if you'd asked her, were you around Jesus that day? She would have said, yes. 
And you can tell me, Mark, I know God's presence. He's in my life. He's always there. Yes. What are you doing? What are you doing when he's there? Are you running around solving all the problems and just aware of his presence nearby? Or are you, think about this, Bryce, I'm going to ask you to come stand here. Stand before me, Bryce. No, before me. Okay. (laughs) To stand before someone is, the implications are quite clear here. He's looking at me. He's right by me. His attention is focused on me. Thanks, Bryce. You've done a great job. Okay? Some of us are like little children in God's presence, totally distracted, just comfortable that mom and dad are nearby, but doing our own things. To stand before God's presence is to put your phone down, to put your stuff down, and to be in front of him and to behold him to look at him, to give him your full attention so that you are ready for him to speak to you. Did you do that today, believer? Did you stand before God today? You could have, and you could still. Did you set your gaze upon him as Mary did? Or did you scurry around in his presence like Martha, content to know that Jesus is in the room? We need to get better at practicing focused attention in God's presence. It's not enough to know He's there and then to fiddle around. When did you last stand before Him and behold His beauty? We can't live this life without God's help. This secret is so simple, you could ignore it. But the answer is in practicing it. Not ignoring it because it's so simple. Some of you might be coming here this morning and Mark, don't you have something more profound than that? If you can practice this, then that's as profound as it gets. If you can practice being quiet and focused in God's presence and looking upon Him, don't neglect the significance of the first secret because of its simplicity. Don't disqualify yourself from His presence when Christ has qualified you by His blood. We need to be in God's presence. What was special about Elijah? Number one, he stood before the Lord. He positioned himself to hear what God was going to say. That's the first secret. The second secret happens three years later. After three years, Elijah appears before Ahab and boldly challenges him and the prophets of Baal. It's probably Elijah's most famous story. On the, to a jewel on Mount Carmel. He tells the king to summon all of Israel, not afraid to create a crowd, this guy, summon all of Israel to Mount Carmel, where he alone will take on 850 prophets. On the mountain, he challenges the prophets to call down fire from heaven, and the real God will answer the challenge, and Israel will know who is really God in Israel. And everyone grabs their popcorn. Because this is what we call a test. And we love this kind of stuff. I mean, he could have done it in a more half-hearted way. He could have said, hey, I know my God's real because of this. No, but he puts God to the test, which is interesting. Because we're told not to do that. And even Jesus won't do that. 
when he's in the desert and they say, hey, the prophecy, Satan says, the prophecy says your body can't, your bones can't be broken, so jump off the, jump off the roof. Prove it. And Jesus says, I won't put God to the test. He knows his bones won't get broken because the prophecy says so, but I won't put God to the test. Elijah puts God to the test in front of the whole of Israel, and they come running. And all day long, the prophets of Baal cry out, and nothing happens. Please go read the story. It's so beautiful. Elijah is so confident that he even starts mocking them. He says, shout louder. You know, because that makes a difference, right? Because your God's really powerful if he can't hear you because you're not shouting loud enough. Shout louder. And they listen. They shout louder. He says, maybe he's deaf. Maybe he's on a journey. Because if your God's not omnipresent, he might just be out. So bad luck. And my favorite, my personal favorite, maybe he's in the toilet. (laughs) That's what he says to them. To enrage them on. Maybe he's, you know, relieving himself. And they rage all the more. Cutting themselves and dancing and going berserk. Spurred on by Elijah and his mocking. And nothing happens all day. What was Israel thinking at this point? I'm sure there were some diehard Baal fans thinking this contest is unfair. No God can answer this challenge. It doesn't mean Baal isn't real, guys. Maybe there were some resident atheists in the crowd, not in favor of either of them, and going, well, one down, one to go. Stupid theists thinking someone in the sky is going to cough up fire from heaven. Chops. As the day wanes and the prophets tire and the crowd has lost all hope of seeing even the smoldering flame of a candle, Elijah steps up and asks them to soak the sacrifice. So two altars were built. One altar was bone dry. You could have put a guy behind it rubbing sticks together, hiding him, hoping that we could do it, pull off a mentalist trick over here and maybe set that thing on fire by human effort and just fool everyone. Elijah's not up for mentalist tricks, so he, on his altar, says, bring water and soak it. And he digs a trench around his altar so that you can see, and he says, soak this thing three times, and the trench starts to overflow with water. No assistant is rubbing sticks behind this altar, and if he is, it's not going to work. Elijah wants Israel to see that God can do it. And it doesn't matter what obstacles or extra hoops you push through. If God wants to do it, he he can do it. And it is at the time of the evening sacrifice. So they've been there all day. At the time of the evening sacrifice, he prays a short prayer and fire falls from heaven. It burns up the whole sacrifice, the whole altar, stones and all. And not a lick of water is left in those trenches. In that moment, the entire crowd, including King Ahab, who is watching, it says all of them fell on their faces. And they became Elijah's. Because they started crying out, our God is Yahweh. Every single one of them 
fell on their face before the God of Israel, the only God, Yahweh. And they said, our God is Yahweh. It's an incredible story with an incredible victory. It points to an even greater victory on another hill when at the time of the evening sacrifice, Jesus will hang on a cross and a greater miracle will take place. When all sin will be placed on him and dealt with forever and everyone who looks on that sacrifice, just like Sebastian testified to earlier, everyone who looks on that sacrifice will fall on their faces before him and cry out, my God is Yahweh. So can you imagine what Elijah must be feeling when he sees the whole nation fall on their knees and cry out to God as Yahweh? Elation? Is that a strong enough word? I'm not sure. I often think about Elijah on Carmel and I wonder at his confidence. You ever seen someone come in? I think about it at church even. We've got people that come here sometimes in a wheelchair. Has the thought ever crossed your mind to walk up to them and pray for them to stand? You know what stops me? And I think it should. I don't have the confidence. And I marvel at Elijah's confidence. With certainty, he knew. And now you have to ask the question, how? Because that's the second secret. Because maybe you should walk up to the person in a wheelchair and ask them to stand, but only if this happens. And the secret is in this verse. Can you put it up? At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and bold that I have done all these things at your word. You know how he knew that fire was going to come down? God told him. You know how you should go up to that person in the wheelchair when it's right and God does do those things? When he tells you. You know what the secret is? You do what God tells you to do. It's that simple. God told Elijah, call them. Get all of Israel there. Challenge the prophets of Baal. And ask for fire to come down from heaven and it will come. Elijah, as confident as he is, is not some bold charlatan pretending he knows what's going on. He is simply doing what God told him to. And that is powerful. I have done all these things at your word. You know, when you've got God's word, you don't even need to, people overrate faith. Oh, if I've got enough faith, like even in that story, like you thought I was saying, Mark, you need to have more faith, to have more confidence, to go up to the person in the wheelchair so that they'll stand. Rubbish. The Confidence comes from God's word, what he has said. You don't need faith if you've got God's word. And you aren't, let me explain. 
often God will say, do this, and you don't have faith. But you go and you do it because he told you to. And he'll get glory from that. And when it happens, it won't be because you had great faith. You think that first story I told you about, I've got any faith? When they said you stretch faith too far, part of why they're wrong is they don't know what it was like to be me that day. There was no faith. There was just, I think God wants me to do this. And I'm going to obey. And many times in my life, I've felt very little faith, but I've just had a word and I've gone and I've done it. And that's why Peter says to Jesus when they've been, these professional fishermen have been fishing all night and catch nothing. And Jesus says, but just throw the nets on the other side. Like they didn't think about doing that. Like you only fish on one side of the boat all night. And, oh, yes, there's another side. Oh, thank you, Jesus. What morons we are. No, Jesus tells him to do something silly, but it's his word. And Peter says, we have fished all night and caught nothing. I'm asking you, does he have faith? When he says that, that they're about to throw down the net and pull up so much fish the boat's going to sink, he does not believe it at all. But he says, at your word, we will do it. At your word. Church, we need to be a people who stand in God's presence and then look at Him, listen to Him, and practice the things that He tells us to do. That is Elijah's secrets right there. There's nothing sweeter than knowing what God wants you to do and then doing it. The secrets to living an empowered life for Christ are that simple. That we would live so simply before God. That we would stand before Him and He would give us the power to live out in obedience everything that He says for His glory. I need to move on. I must confess, I'm still struggling to feel like Elijah's like me. (laughs) And it's not until we get to the next part of his story, and I'm going to have to be speedy here by God's grace. My second point this morning is he's a man like us, not just in power, but now you know where that power comes from, and you can have it too. He's a man like us in his weakness. Until now, we have not seen Elijah put a foot wrong. So it might make it difficult for you or I to relate to him. After the great victory on Carmel, Elijah slaughters all the prophets of Baal himself. 850 people, sword, one down, two down, three. Can you imagine the energy? And that's going to be significant in a moment. And he tells King Ahab, who has just witnessed the miracle and presumably fell on his face and confessed that Yahweh is Lord, he says, go to Queen Jezebel, and now what he's hoping is you're going to usher in a new dawn of spiritual revival. I'm going to pray now for the rain to fall. You go to Queen Jezebel and you tell her what's happened. You tell her that all the prophets of Baal are dead, and you tell her that the whole of Israel has fallen before God. 
and she's lost. And, and Ahab, who is now presumably a convert, climbs into his little chariot and races off. And Elijah is filled with such energy that he beats the chariot to Queen Jezebel. He's so excited by what he's about to see happen that he runs ahead of the chariot. You do not want to be in a foot race with Elijah. It's also part of why the, this next part is significant. And the rain starts to fall. This is significant. Why was it not raining? Because the people had been in rebellion. Now the rain starts to fall. And I imagine as Elijah's running and those raindrops are hitting him, he's going, yes, it's not just the drought that's over. It is the spiritual drought that is over. Thank you, Lord. And he's racing along to see this encounter where Queen Jezebel is going to fall and it's going to be confirmed that Israel have returned to the Lord. And when he gets there, he is extremely disappointed to find that when Ahab says to Jezebel what happened, Jezebel doubles down. She's not afraid. She's angrier than ever. And she says to Ahab, we're going to kill Elijah. He's going to be just like one of those prophets he killed. Nothing has changed. And Elijah, I want you to put this verse up on the screen. Something very weird happens to him. This man who has just been so courageous, who has called down fire in front of the whole of Israel and battled against 850 others by himself, fearlessly so, stood before the king and challenged him fearlessly so. Here's Queen Jezebel say the same thing she's always said, by the way. Nothing's changed. This isn't new. This is the reality Elijah has lived in for the last three years. This is why he's been hiding. They have been trying to kill him. Nothing's changed. And yet, his response. He was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there, isolating himself. Very interesting. Doesn't even want one more person with him. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. Saying, it is enough now, Lord. Take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. Three things are happening to Elijah here, and this is a surprise. I took a double take when I first read this. Why are you so afraid of her? It's the same woman who's been after you for the last three years, and you've been fine. Suddenly, fear is gripping him. What do you notice about what he's doing here? Is God leading him? At any point, does it say, this time God says, you know, this is the second time he's hidden. He's done this before. But the first time God told him to hide, this time God's told him nothing. And he runs and he hides. He's no longer acting off of God's word to him. He's acting off of his fear. He's drinking a poisonous cocktail. You and I drink. There's three things going wrong over here. Number one, exhausted. Utterly exhausted. He has spent himself serving the Lord. And when you are exhausted, doesn't matter how strong your um, constitution is under normal circumstances, you start to behave differently. 
you start to think differently. You're not mentally as strong as you were before. You've got to be very careful, Western world, of the temptation to run so hard you exhaust yourself. Because you won't hear God then. And you won't think clearly. You'll start to make poor decisions. That's just part one of what's going wrong for him. Part two, he's afraid. He's acting out of fear. He's responding to what he's afraid is going to happen. He's no longer asking God, what do you say about this? As you've been saying to me over the last three years, and I felt very safe and confident in you. He's not even asking God what he should do. He is just acting in response to fear and running for his life. And the last part of the cocktail is disappointment. He has unmet expectations. He thought it was going to turn out a certain way. It doesn't turn out that way at all. And now he's disappointed in God. And these three things hitting him together at the same time puts him into a mental hole where he wants to end it all. It's a fantastic turnaround for the great prophets who just had this great victory on the mountain literally yesterday. So what can we learn from that? We are not meant to live on the brink of exhaustion. You know what it is when you do that? It's lack of faith. You think if you don't push yourself to the edge that God's work won't get done. And I know you think that because that's what I do. If I don't push myself to the edge, God's work won't get done. And I put it on me. And I lose my trust in Him and His work. It is pride. It is depending on self. Be careful of serving the Lord so fervently that you're exhausted physically and mentally. And it's tempting to do it because it seems right. But when you do that, you are primed to fall. Don't make important decisions from a space of exhaustion. You won't think clearly. And you struggle to discern God's voice. You'll make more mistakes than you normally would make. Don't be driven by fear. That's also a lack of faith. It's raising the circumstances above what God has said. When you are responding to fear, that's what's happening. If it's about finances, you're starting to trust the circumstances of lack of finances over what God has said about himself as a provider. When the second is stronger, the fear goes away. But when the fear is strong, we stop remembering what God said about who he is, and we start trying to exhaust ourselves trying to solve our problems. It's a lack of faith. And the last one is also a lack of faith. It's unmet expectations. You put the expectations above who God is. You think the way you thought it should have worked out is more important than God's sovereignty on the throne and how he chooses to move things forward in your story. All three are a lack of faith. What if your expectations were not the correct ones? And what if you're misjudging the all-knowing one from a space of limited understanding? The story ends with restoration. Elijah has abandoned his post. He didn't listen to God. He ran away. He wasn't meant to do that. He finds himself sitting under a broom tree asking to die, and God is so gracious to him, he ministers to him. And if you're in Elijah's space today, God wants to minister to you. And it's three simple things that 
God does for Elijah. First, he lets him sleep. And I want to say to you Westerners, you don't sleep enough. So the angel comes, wakes him up, feeds him, and he goes back to sleep. Can you imagine the angel of the Lord standing in front of you? And you're so tired, you go straight back to sleep. And the angel doesn't stop him from falling asleep. He lets him sleep. He needs to recover from his exhaustion. He's feeding him heavenly food when he wakes up. You need to eat better. I'm telling you, all the health experts read 1 Kings chapter 19. When they said, sleep better, eat better, he's feeding him heavenly food. And the angel says to him, this journey is too much for you. Eat. And I want to say to you, Christian, this spiritual journey that you and I are on is too much for you. You need to eat from God's word. You need to eat from his presence. The angel of the Lord is a representation of God himself. I believe it's Jesus in his presence feeding him. Arise and eat, Elijah. This journey is too much for you. Don't do this on your own, guys. You need God's help. You need his food. And then you know what Elijah has to do after that? He goes for a run. Sleep, eat, run. It's all there. He runs to Mount Carmel. 40 days. I'm not saying you should run for 40 days. That's what he did. He, he ate some heavenly bread, okay? There was some potent stuff in there. On the strength of that food, he runs 40 days and arrives at the place of restoration. And you can put that final verse on the screen. I'm just going to highlight one thing from it because we're at the end. He came to the cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? There's rebuke in that question, by the way. You shouldn't be here. You're meant to be at your post, serving my people. What are you doing here? And I, I wonder if the Holy Spirit's saying that to you, not what are you doing here in church this morning, but at what point in your life is God asking that question of you? What are you doing here? You're not meant to be here. I didn't tell you to do this. And Elijah's defensive, so he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Full of self in his answer. Can move to the next page. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before me. Do the thing you've stopped doing. Go out and stand on the mount before me. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces and rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Can turn to the next slide. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. The implication being is, this is God. The first three things, God passes by and does some really cool stuff, but the discernment is you're not actually in that. But as soon as nothing happens, and some of the early scriptures say it was literally a thin silence. This translation says a gentle whisper. Some say 
Nothing happened. And then the discernment that God has actually passed me by and spoken to me. And so he covers his face, which is an act of humility. But he still hasn't learned the lesson, so God has to ask him the question again. Elijah, what are you doing here? And we can be slow to learn sometimes, to take comfort in Elijah's exact verbatim word-for-word response. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Um, And you can go to the last page. Or maybe there's one more. And the Lord and the Lord said to him, Go, return your way. What's happening here? Go stand before me. I'm about to pass by. Face me. Focus on me. What's that? That's his word that Elijah has been missing since he ran. God is finally speaking to him directly again, and he says, Go, return your way. This is Peter. Feed my sheep. God is restoring him in this moment. He's saying, I will speak to you again. I will give you more work to do. Go and return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholoah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Last slide. And the one who escapes the sword from Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword from Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. And every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, you think you're alone? You're not alone. Elijah, you think we've lost? We haven't lost. I work differently to what you think. And because of your ministry, that you have faithfully performed, 7,000 remain. We have not lost. You just can't see it yet. Get back to work. Trust me. And the man who comes out of that mountain is a different man to the one who went in. It takes six years for Elijah to hand over his ministry to Elisha. He continues to serve the Lord for six years faithfully. And some commentators say, well, Maybe God's punishing him here because he's replacing him. I don't agree with that because God gives him the most fantastic send-off anyone's had since Enoch. When he says, Elijah, your time is now. Come, be with me. You have done what I've asked you to do. And a chariot of fire comes to fetch him, and he goes off to glory, having finished the work God gave him to do. I want to say to you, church, in closing, God wants to restore you. Some of you out there are exhausted. Some of you are afraid. Some of you are disappointed in God because things haven't turned out the way you thought they should have. Some of you are all of those things. And what Elijah is saying to us today is, stand before God's presence. Face Him. Listen to Him. Seek Him. If you're saying, Mark, I need more help with that, fast and don't fast for any other reason. We fast sometimes, but we fast because I lost my job, or we fast because... I want this person to get saved. There's nothing wrong with those things. You get something in your head, you go, I want to fast that. How about this? God, teach me how to stand before you. I don't hear your voice enough. Let me fast today just to seek you.
just to say, can I hear your voice speaking to me so that you can lead me, so that you can bring me back to restoration? We need to be Christians who stand before God's presence, who do what he says. He is so kind and gentle in our place of weakness. He will minister to you. He will strengthen you. And he will tell you what to do next. Let's close our eyes. Father, we thank you for Elijah, a man just like us. Lord, we pray that the secrets we've heard today would be put into practice in our lives. That whether it's in our prayer moments, in our scripture reading moments, in our fasting moments, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to stand before your presence. To look upon you and not be distracted. To make you the focus point of our lives. And Lord, teach us to listen, draw near, and hear that gentle whisper he heard that day. We need your guidance over our lives, Lord. We can't do it without you. Thank you that you tell us we're your sheep and you speak to your sheep. And I want to say to you as I pray for you, church, it's not normal not to hear his voice. It happens to all of us. But if that's become normal for you, you need to seek him because it's not normal. He will respond to you if you seek him. If you fast and say, Lord, I want to know you more, I want to hear you better, he will respond to you because you are his child and he loves you and he knows you need his voice. Stop running. Stop depending on yourself. Stop acting out of fear. Stop acting out of exhaustion. Stop acting from places of disappointment. Learn what it means to go stand before him on the mountain of the Lord for him to pass by you and teach you more about his character and who he is, for him to give you the instructions you need to know what to do next. In Jesus' name, amen. Well done on making it through a longer service. It is quarter to you. I'm going to bow out to this point and say enjoy coffee and uh, see you next week.